listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Sponsored by Storm, the digital cinema production hub from The Foundry. Go to thefoundry.co.uk slash storm for details. And by the Australian Cinematographers Society. Visit cinematographer.org.au. Hi, and welcome to this week's Red Centre, now called the RC, podcast number 81. I'm joined in the uh, hot seat by Jason Wingrove at our old location, the last time we'll be recording from here. Yeah, that's right. We couldn't manage to sort of change locations and the theme tune and the logo and the name of the show all at the same time. Yes, as you uh, know from last week's show, the RC um, is on the new FX Guide website, the, the new cool-looking, funky thing that came out of our Chicago office, thanks to those guys. And, uh, but separate to that, we're actually moving offices next week. Yeah, Yay. where there's free parking. Yes, we're going from the tech penthouse to the tech compound. Um, and the tech compound has... Tech bunker. No, it's not the tech bunker that's in Los Angeles. No, it's the tech Miramar or something because it's literally surrounded by a ton of other interesting, really interesting companies. Yes, we're going to be there with uh, Ari, Kodak, Panavision, uh, Deluxe, uh, Post House, um, mm. quite a few things. Oh, and somebody that's got nothing to do with the film industry that apparently sells military targeting equipment. Awesome. Yeah. Well, but, which is kind of always has a bit of a link to filmmaking gear. I mean, a lot of... A lot of that's true. A lot of stuff like West Cam, all that stuff started off with military... Yeah, no, absolutely. Cool. I mean, in, in fact, uh, that's go, absolutely the case. Should go um, visit. And uh, actually, that, that segues well into the first piece of news this week. And now, the RC News. Um, well, yes, you've got that first story there, Mike. The Phantom have a new camera out. Yet another new camera from Phantom. Yeah, Vision Research um, is a company that uh, I think it's a good company and uh, obviously done a lot of stuff with the Phantom. But they aren't a company that's primarily aimed at the film industry. They are servicing the film industry, but they also cater to uh, many other aspects of the imaging market. Now, that could be anything from, um, well, obviously in our industry, they're interested in stereoscopic and all that kind of stuff, but they also uh, do stuff for the military, of course. Yeah, and pyrotechnics and um, ballistics uh, manufacturing. So we believe the, the Phantom V341 isn't specifically aimed at um, our industry, though it you know could be used. Um, but obviously the technology, even if it is, I mean, you could use this camera, nothing stopping you, but you could also imagine this coming into a more film-friendly packaging. Having said that, it actually has the Cinemag compatibility built in. Um, so let me just give you some of the specs on this. This thing runs um, uh, with a 25.6, I think, millimeter by 16 millimeter sensor. So that's pretty good size. Pretty close to, yeah, Super 35. Yep, and um, at its maximum resolution, it's going to run at... 2560 by 1600 so this is obviously higher than 1920 by 1080 it's a good sort of um 2k film full gate kind of number yep and that's 800 frames a second now at the other end of the spectrum jace that's a little slower than some of their other cameras i'm glad you said that because at the other end of the spectrum you can shoot at 129 1,500 frames a second. That's like 12 pixels by 12 pixels. Uh, actually, it's 256 pixels <laughs> by 8. <laughs> and there's pretty much everything in between. So uh, yeah. let's pick something sensible, like 720 kind of res, 720p kind of res. Yep. That's at about 3,180 frames a second. Now, 3,180 frames a second is off the dial. For yeah. I mean, we've talked about it before. You don't have to go very slow to actually get 
quite slow, you know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, for, for industrial, that's perfect. They, want, they don't necessarily always need the res, but they want those frames per seconds. Um, but, but we're more interested in, in, in resolution. Yeah, so uh, let's go for the, for the standard HD, because I think that's sort of comparing apples across the board. Most people have a 1920 by 1080 output, and that's 1,440 frames a second. Now, I should point out this is actually a 12-bit depth, um, and it's obviously a very, very sensitive sensor. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to shoot at the incredibly short shutter rates that they're talking about. So this is a 4,000 ISO camera. Right. Um, well, 4,000 if it's mono. 4, it's 1,000 uh, theoretically yeah. if it's coloured. But still, at 1,000 ISO shooting um, at about 1,400 frames a second, uh, that's pretty good for most people then that's comparable to most of the other phantoms so i'm wondering what separate what is separating this from uh the rest i guess i'm not sure why it's particularly aimed at military versus uh you know yeah it does have a global electronic shutter do all of the i guess they all yeah. have the global electronic shutter something yeah mm. um yeah i don't know either but uh it's just been announced in this last week so i'm keen to have a look at it and okay. i think yeah i think the point that that you make is that um even with the cine mag on it, that and Ron's obviously with the cine uh, station, it's it's at those sorts of frame rates of fourteen hundred. You would need an ad that was almost written for the mm. I don't know an Olympic Games kind of thing where you want to see athletes doing yeah. something mega slow. I mean, it is literally you're getting close. I mean, you've seen that stuff, you know, the, the Twixter tests where literally you're they twixtering to a thousand frames a second or so, and it's almost like. They could be just bullshitting you, just doing using still frame, still <laughs> just just three D warping a still frame because it often is very, very almost immovably slow, and you need to park on those shots really long time to to get the sense of the the action. I mean, I was actually were uh, touching, just reading some of the stuff for Green Hornet, some of the fight scenes where they were mixing up, yep. uh, which we'll go on to on the VFX, VFX show later in yes. the next VFX show episode. Uh, interesting, some of the really slow mo fight scenes in there and if you've seen the show there's almost a, again getting to people almost parked in space yep. and that's literally only 150 you know 200 or so frames a second well because at that number we're talking about at the 1920 number we're at um, a 60th of real time so one second becomes a minute mm. um, and that's a pretty big ask actually because uh, like something that would take a couple of seconds to play out which could be a punch or whatever would be two minutes of uninterrupted screen time which is unthinkable really yeah 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 um, I if think there's a lot of very, very fast action happening in your frame, it can make a lot of sense, like falling rain or, you know, a bit rocket blast or ballistics or something, then that really makes sense if you've got something. But naturally occurring, not much happens that quickly that you really want to slow it down that fast, you know or, what I mean? Or do I want to hang on a shot for an entire minute? In a, in a, mm. I mean, they've had an action sequence and I had a car crash. Mm. One second wouldn't have a lot of crashing happening. Yeah. And, uh, and that would take, you know, a minute to play out. Sometimes that is the beauty of, of slow-mo is that you're really just sitting and parking and watching stuff slowly unfold is kind of the joy of, of slow-mo, really. Okay, but, but save the airbag deploying. If somebody was going through a windshield, mm. that would take at least, I would imagine, a couple of seconds or a second to happen. And them going through a windshield oh, takes and then, yeah, a minute. And then some, a ton. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, I... It, it's it's not that we're saying that it's a bad thing. I mean, obviously, it's terrific. It's magnificent. Um, yeah. But just that, uh, as with, I guess, megapixels, we, mm. we, it's not a race to the biggest number. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to worry about, oh, this camera only does 800 versus 2,000 for the other ones because literally when it comes down to it, you're most of all going to be shooting two, three, 
400 tops, you know, for the average, uh, if, if that, you know, for the average I, I mean, sort I, of uh, slow-mo. I spent gag. most of my career thinking that slow-mo was when you'd shoot, tw- you know, 25 or 24 at 30. Yeah. Because you just take the edge off it. It's one of those exponential things that literally, you know, the difference between 50 and 120 frames can be just phenomenally different. And, you know, even when I sometimes just on set just shoot stuff at 50, I think, God, this is consistently go, damn, I, you know, I really should have shot that at 36. Or, you know, if you shoot it at 100, you should have shot it at 50. It's, it's um, you know, definitely very deceptive uh, stuff and you got to test and I guess that that's why where digital is so good now that you it's easier to do that test you can just do a quick pass and then play back you don't have to you know you don't have to do five uh, versions of frames per second on as you would with film and then and then see which one works yeah yeah what's interesting for me is well okay, I'm going to geek out here for a second is the <laughs> just for a second just for a second um the spectral response of the the three four one has an, I think, a, a reasonable amount of crosstalk between the color channels on the wavelength um, frequency response curves, and so I guess there's some heavy duty matrixing going on because obviously they wouldn't get that inherently out of the sensor. Um, so I'm wondering whether you could get access. I, I presume you can get access to the raw pre matrixing. I'll, I'll post in the show notes or uh, Jace will the um, the spectral response curve for the three four one. Um, it's definitely like uh, obviously more sensitive in the red, as you'd expect. Um, mm. But yeah, it's quite a lot of crosstalk in the green. So I'd be. Yeah, people always have a bit of. I mean, no offense to Phantom, there's some great stuff, but people do always have to do a little bit of treatment with their stuff. That you know, the payoff is the, is the frame rate, and uh, but it is a massive amount of data and quite requires a bit of playing to to get it nice and to get it to get it looking great. I've seen some stuff from Weisscam, Weisscam. Which oh, yeah. just looks outstanding. Not, I mean, not saying it's outstandingly better than, better than, um, uh, better than Phantom. But uh, if you're more interested in, say, film look than say frame rates, it's definitely one of those one of the cameras you should check out, or at least do some tests between the two because Weisscam uh, uh, has done a really great job with some of their gear, and it's the, the imagery is looking gorgeous. And I've seen stuff where the dynamic range that, yeah. and everything is just is, is really impressive. So I, 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 don't just think Phantom um, if you've got high-speed stuff, because everybody just does. Oh, let's just get a Phantom. It's just literally you don't even almost think about the alternative. But uh, Weisscam is very, very um I agree with you worthy. that Vicecam is good, but I also think the Phantom has rightly earned its place uh, with a certain degree of prominence because yeah. I think it is a mm. cracker of a... Yeah, and they're both really, really filmic. They're both very on-set um, friendly now. You know, they're both very... Much more than they were, yeah. Much more than they used to be, just literally computers and uh, computers. Well, part of that's in, in who can decode the buggers. Yeah. it used to be, like, really hard to get anyone that would... Um, you know, be able to open the files effectively. Yeah, no, so they're definitely both now in the running. So, yeah. Right, well, that's the, that's the first bit of news covered. I, I, I have been remiss. I've been uh, so enthusiastic to talk about cameras that I actually forgot to tell you, uh, listeners, who is coming up in the Red Room later, which is a huge mistake because we actually got a, a really interesting theme uh, this month here at, uh, at the RC. Space month. Space month at the RC. And <laughs> the first one be. of these is actually an interview you did, Jace, which is just awesome. Yeah, I spoke to James Nyhouse, who is a director of photography uh, and stereographer and a 3D consultant, but he specializes in shooting IMAX. And he's, uh, his, I guess, what led me to chat with him was the fact that he uh, trains astronauts to shoot uh, IMAX and up to Hubble and in shooting them uh, out of the cargo uh, camera uh, at... Um, 
in the space shuttle. So it's just fantastic to have a chat with him about and about the you know progress towards potential digital systems and you know shooting shooting with a massive camera and and uh, the pitfalls or uh, you know all the or anything fantastic about um, um, shooting IMAX 3D, which is just you know. Amazing! It's still the best way to uh, get that image uh, on screen for IMAX is to shoot yeah, film. Yeah, it's really spectacular stuff. So that's coming up later in the show. I apologise about uh, about this. <laughs> I'm just uh, I don't know what happened to me there. But um, yeah, so that's uh, that's coming up. And as we said, we've got some actually other interviews coming up uh, in coming eps with some really incredible people. Some of which I must say, Jace, we've been trying to get on the show for I think now six months, maybe uh, seven. Mm-hmm. So uh, these are interviews that are really going to be worth it. Um, and this one's a little filmy, but uh, next week's going to be incredibly uh, well. Uh, it's a treat. Um, hey, so like, let's get back to the news. I apologise for that. And uh, over at uh, Red, we know that uh, of course Mark's camera got nicked. We apologised. Uh, for interrupting that coverage last week with your birthday, but <laughs> but um, yes, he got he lost six, got seven. In fact, he has double O seven. Yes, yeah, almost worth uh, getting the first one nicked just so you can have uh, Epic M double O seven. Almost. Did Mark actually have two anyway? Was he always in line for seven? I thought maybe. Uh, it possibly was. Yeah, because he's obviously. I think um, he got two, and so he's always had six and seven. Yeah. Um, but so, seven is safely in his office, not not in a. Uh, <laughs> In a, an uh, unsecured location in Europe. Yeah, so there's a thread on Red User where he's posting uh, his um, thoughts so far, and there'll be a lot of stuff coming on that thread and uh, obviously links to that in the show notes. But uh, the most interesting thing for me so far is just his thoughts on um, on Redmote, which obviously, you know, as you know, Mike, I've been slobbering over for... Highly uh, desirable object. Ex- indeed. It's shaping up to be the, this thing of lust that I know will be absolutely demanded for everybody as the must-have accessory. Um, so far, just with the limited work... Um, um, firmware on the uh, red mode which obviously will be updated and, and will evolve as it goes but just at the moment they're doing um, roll stop changing ISO white balance and, uh, and toggling engaging exposure and, and false color what what powers the red remote it's because it's wireless so it's uh, yes it's, it's internal it's internal batteries you can obviously but like are they AA batteries it's, it's it kind of like you know an iPad kind of thing whereby right. it's an inbuilt Charges. inbuilt battery if eventually the battery needs changes it has to go back to uh, back to back home to be replaced by technicians or an in-field technician. So am I jumping ahead by asking whether we know how the battery life is on these suckers? Uh, it's meant to be about four or five hours. Okay. Um, anecdotally, it's just lasts a long time. And, you know, the display goes to sleep if you don't use it for a while. So, you know, it's all about sort of battery management. And obviously that, those times, I guess, as the firmware evolves, will, will get better. Is, but you can obviously tether remote? it. You can tether it to... Uh, it doesn't have to be wireless. Obviously, as soon as you yeah, dock it back on true. the camera, it's, it's charging its self up again but do i have to get is it like a one red remote per camera or could i like buy a red remote if i was somebody that wanted to have one separately to the you camera? can run multiple cameras from one red remote if you're doing a red you know 3d rig you right can, so they're not paired in, they essentially do pair but i guess you can well, pair multiple paired. at one right. time yeah that's not right and it has this sort of you know red link thing so literally when you wake it it pairs to the camera and if you turn it off the camera knows that it's turned off and it, you know it's not looking for the remote all the time so I just think literally to have this thing in your hand and have the ability to um, change the ISO and roll and stop and do the one to one focus check or um, you know turn on um, 
false color or whatever is just fantastic. All the stuff that the assistants would be reaching for all the time. They've got this thing around their neck on a lanyard and you're just literally controlling the whole thing. It's, if it's up on the top of, top of a crane or, you know, it's just going to Come be. Anything, yeah. And I can really, I really think that um, assistants who work with Epic a lot are just going to buy these themselves. Even if they don't have an Epic, they're just going to buy it so they know every time they're on a red shoot, uh, they're going to be able to, you know, they're going to know they're going to have one, even if the owner doesn't have one. So it's hmm. going to be like the assistant's tool. Literally, if they know they can adjust focus on every part of the camera. I just think, you know, I don't mean to go on about it, but, you know, this is just like, this is freaking science fiction stuff for me, for, uh, for having done focus pulling in the 80s and 90s, and I just look at this thing and just, why now? Why couldn't I have been born 20 years later? So, so we, uh, <laughs> we also have Tom Lowe to thank, because Tom on Red User uh, posted something basically pointing out that Tom does a lot of, obviously, time-lapse stuff. And mm. then he knows a bunch of people that would really like to actually have the physical dimensions of the Epic so that they could build rigs and add-ons and bits and bobs. And I was surprised somebody hadn't, from Red, actually published this separately. I thought it already was out there, but um, mm. it's obviously fixed. Yeah. And there's nothing uh, proprietary or uh, commercial and confidence about it. So, yeah, so there's a great uh, proper schematic drawing of uh, what a Red... Um, yeah, it's Epic's going to be like. And, and it's not just it is this wide. It's actually literally showing you to scale where, you know, if you're building a rig or a cage, it's showing you where the on-off batteries are, where the buttons are, where the cabling in and out is. So if you're building a rig, you can know where to avoid, you know, put access holes or whatever. Because uh, I know a lot of guys are actually starting to build rigs for, you know, for stuff like The Hobbit. They're building gear down here now and um, obviously don't have cameras, you know. <laughs> Somebody posted, I thought it was very funny, um, I mean, I, I don't normally think this kind of stuff is funny, but somebody posted, damn, I got my dimensions wrong on my Lego version, and they actually had a photo, or they built a Lego version of an Epic. I did see that. I didn't... And, uh, I wasn't... I resisted the... Um, I'm sorry. I thought that was pretty funny. It, it was, was. It was pretty funny. Sense. It looked pretty good. It looked, it looked astonishingly <laughs> good. I, would, I mean, it was like... Yeah, you'd almost want to, if you hadn't seen that and you thought of it, you'd want to like do that and take it to NAB and be like, here's the, the prototype. Get it, Epic signed, yeah. get it signed by uh, by Jim. That is the ultimate, I've got far too much time, red red crack sitting. Yeah, you know, I guess you've got a box of Lego and you're sitting there on Red User. Uh, Maybe listening funny. to the RC with nothing That's else to do. Very, hey, um, very, very funny. Speaking of which, uh, I mentioned NAB. Um, at NAB 2011, for the first time in a year or two, they're going to have uh, Red's going to have a booth on the floor, which is going to be fantastic. Obviously, I mean, not that last year wasn't great, and going off to the um, what, Tropicana, Tropicana, yeah, their own separate event. Now, obviously, they're coming uh, back into the main hall, into I think the uh, lower of the South Hall, which is the sort of place that most of the post production people tend to hang. Not actually where most of the camera people tend to hang. No, no. Central Hall is where they they do things, which I think sort of. Re- reflects the data-centric nature of the uh, red workflow. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep, they're going to be showing, obviously, working epic. It's a size booth, I understand. Is it? Okay. Yep, so they've got to have a, a pretty pretty large booth, they say. Working epic, Scarlet, Red Ray, and new 4K reel, obviously, uh, plus a surprise. Well, I'm not going to waste time speculating on the surprise. No. I have no idea what it is. No, and- if you go to this thread, there's like... One post from Jim saying it's going to be a surprise, and there's 25 pages of people talking about what I, the I surprise could I be. Don't care. But yeah, that's where but that I, ends. I will but, say that I'm very pleased to see that we're going to have a working Red Ray, because Red Ray has been, as opposed to Red Ray Pro, which we've seen. Yeah, but yeah. but I'm, I want to see these out in the market. Yeah, I actually want to see them release um, mm. them as products, and of course, there's it's easy to sort of sensibly say they should get the Epic out first, mm. but. 
once that's happened, I would hate to see a product go away. Can I only imagine that if, if we're talking Red Ray as opposed to Red Ray Pro, that that has definitely an object that has evolved from the original thing, which we knew, it'd be literally like a little, yeah. like a little DVD player. Uh, no doubt, I'm presuming it's going to have. Uh, well, what would be great is obviously it's got slots and docks for um, SSDs and CF cards. I'm guessing. Well, yeah, because it was all it was all initially a CF cardy kind of or or DVDR. Yeah, and that's obviously got to have evolved and changed. Yeah, absolutely. So. Going, going away from from disc, but I mean, I still have that ability to disc because obviously what it's. Um, uh, what it was intended to do was to be a really great uh, playback method and or for cinemas or screening rooms to have something like and, this. And I've got to say, with no you know, malice, I I'm really don't want to discuss them anymore. I want to have them and test them and use them. I mean, I actually want to go make things with them. I yeah, wanna, exactly. I want to yeah. go shoot things and project them and, exactly and I right. want to actually get them in my hands. Every job I do, I think, wow, this would be so much better with an Epic. Yeah. Life and, would be so much better with an Epic and, and, or a Scarlet or whatever. And this is not... Um, to say I'm, I'm being critical, it's just a, a fact. Like at some point, you know, the purpose of having cameras is to shoot with them. And that's what, and what we want to do. We want to shoot. And, uh, and the red ray, I think, is a really good part of that because I really think it's, um, it's going to be important to be able to have a good way of reviewing footage. And increasingly, um, stuff to do with stereo requires projection because the difference between watching um, footage mono on different size screens is, you know, obviously... Uh, certain amount, you know, mm. it feels better when it's bigger. Yep. But stereo is very different because literally the stereoscopic effect is dependent on the distance between you and the screen. And so you can't get the same um, file and judge it well on a 21-inch screen in stereo, even with glasses, even with all the right kit, uh, like you can on a throw because of the physical distance. Um, yeah. And so everything doesn't scale. Um, the reason, of course, it doesn't all scale is your eyes don't scale. I mean, if your eyes got closer together on a smaller screen, literally the eye sockets got closer, then that would be fine. But that doesn't happen. So clearly you have to project stuff. So I'm, and I said I wasn't going to talk about the, um, the surprise, and I'm, and I'm not saying this is what that is. However, what I would hope to see in the Red Ray is stereo because um, I think that there's been so much adoption of yeah. uh, Red's uh, workflow um, at the high end, with things like, excuse <clears throat> me, with things like the Epic, yeah. that are obviously out there right now, shooting in stereo, that that has been, yeah, the linchpin of the main, the the productions that Epic has been is being taken to. So it would actually make sense uh, in that you know uh, environment if somebody said, look, here's Red Ray, we could rig these up so you could play back on set, um, maybe in a tent, maybe in a you know in a room beside the studio, and obviously not you know, out in the field, but playback stereo and you could actually judge uh, rushes in stereo. And I think as a stereo playback device, Red Ray would be awesome because, as I say, you can't just judge your stereo back on a small screen because the throw affects yeah. the experience. Right. There's nothing you can do save rework out the stereoscopic offsets and thus change the point of wanting to bloody review the thing in stereo in the first place. Yeah, you want to have a big screen to sort of judge yeah. your framing. I mean, stuff that's not... Sh you can tell stuff that's not shot for 3D and then is, is post-converted is there's something about the way you frame and the way you think. And the stacking up of it in Z-Space because you want to be able to have good foreground, mid-ground, background, etc. Now, there are some things you're not going to do in the field. Obviously, I've become a pretty big fan of floating window. I've really um, moved over to the Disney school of doing the floating window in stereoscopy effect. That's something you typically don't do um, in, uh, in the field. To, uh, it's done it in post. Might have to talk us through that one. Oh, okay. So, um, 
let's say I had something in the foreground, like uh, a character. I've got two characters talking. You're doing an over-the-shoulder shot. So I've got, yeah, this uh, has been a real issue, I remember. Man yeah. talking to woman, and I'm shooting over the shoulder of the man at the woman. Okay, so uh, the stereoscopic effect is going to be active pretty good because we're fairly close in a mid-shot, and clearly in a mid-shot, um, they're inside that kind of 10-metre zone where stereo really plays, and that's all good. Uh, it's an over-the-shoulder shot, so you've got something closer to camera, further away, so again, really good. The only problem you've got is uh, working out where you set up your stereoscopic offset, where the convergence point is. So let's assume that I say the convergence point is normally... Um, it's the point where, the, essentially, if you're taking your glasses off, that would, you wouldn't see any overlay, you're not going to see any left-right differences. They converge at that point, yeah. yeah. And so typically uh, the convergence point that someone would pick, if you're certainly from the uh, Avatar Cameron school, you'd say, okay, wherever focus is. Yeah. So I've got the two-shot, and uh, if you were just on a normal film, you'd probably unless there was some reason not to, say focus on the woman, right? Because yep. you've got the back of the head of the other guy. Yep. Okay, so now because I focused on the woman and I converge at the woman, then you're right, if you take the glasses off, her image looks like it's um, on you, top of you itself. You can happily watch her without the glasses. The trouble is the guy is therefore sitting closer to us than the woman because the woman feels like she's at the screen plane. Yes. The guy is going to feel closer it's into like us. having something inside your head or... No, I... yeah, that's not quite right. Well, no, but it just means it's, it's, they sit in the space between the screen and my head. Mm. Okay, now, the only problem with that is that my screen is cut off in, in this mid-shot, obviously. Um, over the shoulder shot, he is not going to be fully in frame, not contained. So my brain, it says, you know, I think um, I am looking. must be looking through a window. The trouble with looking through this window is the guy seems like he's on the other side of the window because he's cut off by the window frame. But I'm stereoscopically reading him as being closer to me because of the parallax shift because mm -hmm. the convergence point was on the woman. Okay, so, so what does your brain do? He says, well, it's a bit annoying, really, because I see him both sitting out in front, but if I look anywhere near the edge of the screen, clearly he's been cut off, so he must be behind. And so that's just been a stereo problem. And in the old days, people would say, oh, you can't do that. And a lot of us said, well, you probably can. It's not a big deal, but, you mm. know, it, it doesn't work super well as a stereo effect. Um, but, hey, you know, it's the, there are worse things. Mm. Um, so... Then came along this idea of, well, okay, imagine for a second, I'm just going to make the math really simple for you. I've got a 10-meter throw to the screen. I've converged on the woman, and she is standing a meter or two in front of our guy. So theoretically, simple maths, 10 meters to the woman. The guy is two meters uh, closer to us than that, so he's obviously eight meters uh, from my head, two meters from her, and that's um, breaking the, the line because obviously he can't be in front of the screen and behind it. So what you do is you get a effectively what you might think of as a um, four-sided letterbox, you know, a letterbox being black bars. Mm -hmm. So a four-sided one of those. And you simply stereoscopically project it to be sitting at, oh, I don't know, seven and a half metres. Right. So you literally give the audience... Like split, a, split focus, but you're doing it with your convergence point rather than your well, focus No, no, point. it's not split focus. You, you are literally suspending a black frame mm. out at seven and a half feet. Uh, okay. And so your mind imagines now that the edge of the screen is back out at seven and a half meters and you're you're cheating into the audience's space but your mind doesn't mind that so much it just thinks that the window in inverted commas that we're looking through yeah happens to be a bit closer to us than it otherwise used to so it's putting the the edge frame of frame line literally like the curtains in the screen yeah exactly like you know the curtains at the edge of the cinema yeah. screen yeah imagine if you so um, you would not do this but imagine you made a you know digital CG version of the curtains yeah. and you projected them to be sitting at seven and a half metres so yeah. the audience 
somehow thinks that the screen literally stops seven and a half metres away from their head instead of ten metres. Now, you don't do it with red curtains, so, obviously. Right. But so if you, you suddenly pop frame. from a wide shot to a over-the-shoulder shot and you put this floating window in, the frame lines actually come in a little bit from... Well, you, you make it consistent, but actually you, you right. really can't There's tell. always a little bit of cropping then, but it's digital, but then we've got control and, of it and, and it's constant. And, and not only that, but this idea of the floating frame, the way I've described it, you can imagine it would be parallel to the screen that we're talking about. Yeah. It's like a rectangle. Okay, so, so far have Disney got in cleverly working this technology that they'll actually float a window that isn't parallel to your head to the screen, as it were. Like, they will actually have one that maybe leans back a bit. So if somebody, um, if the over-the-shoulder shot was a high shot looking yeah. down, they might tilt the screen so it isn't actually straight up and down. And so you get the sense that the top of the screen is a little closer to you than the bottom of the screen, that you're sitting higher in the cinema. Um, well, now, you might say serious. sounds... So this is happening all the time, though. If you go, so this is happening. If you go and see Tangled in 3D, right? I'm be, so glad you, you used that as an example because literally Tangled, I spoke to the stereographer in uh, Korea when I was there with John Montgomery, and I said, so really, mate, I mean, how much, you know, how much do you actually do this? I mean, this is, I thought, I thought personally that this was one of those, you know, one in 20 shots, we use this trick. And he went, mm, pretty much 95% of the time we'd float the window. Yeah. Um, and they, they float it all the time. And the reason that they do it is that if I'm a stereographer and I'm shooting, um, I really don't, uh, you know, we've had this discussion. You yeah. don't normally like stuff coming out into the screen. You think of that as a gag. Yeah, because I remember on set when we shoot, we did a 3D short together. Mm-hmm. And um, we did for both the sort of reverse over shoulders. We did one where we didn't have the fore, the foreground shoulder in frame. Yep. And then we did one, you know, dirty with the foreground um, um, over the shoulder in in frame, just to sort of see the difference and to see, you know, have it have it before, with and without. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that. We didn't pre- we didn't stage this. No, seriously, dude, because I was looking at your film mm. yesterday with yep. Dave Morley, um, uh, who's doing the at Fuel, who's doing the thing, and we decided to do a floating window on your opening shot because on your opening shot the guy comes in and, and he does the cleaning the lens yeah and, yes. th- and that was causing us problems because it was so far out of the screen so we've decided to float a screen out on your shot mm-hmm. on your opening shot and uh, we'll actually pull convergence as well because obviously what i mean what it comes down to for me i guess is not if if this floating window get lets gives me the control to do stuff like that and have shoulders in and out and or shoot stuff naturally and not have to go and find someone should I shouldn't I do this I mean obviously once you get into week one of a of a show you're going to know what you can and can't do but from a director it's quite interesting walking into that arena and all of a sudden have you know people other than the usual people telling you what not to do yeah, I know. uh telling you what not to yeah, do i feel bad about that but no no look that we did it we all did it for the experience and to know yeah. what what were the pitfalls what you know we did all did it to learn that kind of stuff but here's the thing when we but did that, that means... you, i was aware of the floating window as a concept and i didn't i just didn't give it much weight right i've completely changed my point of view and given it a lot of weight now but i will say this like this is not um me telling you how to suck eggs because uh or rather me telling you sort of 101 stuff because we interviewed uh david booth who's the vfx supervisor of uh sanctum which is a jim cameron executive produced 3d film which is going to be shot here uh they're doing no floating window at all Right. Um, it's completely uh, not the case. So it's not like this is a concept that everyone's adopting, but I think, generally speaking, in terms of stereo cinematography, the cutting-edge stuff is happening in animated 
films. And was it something they did in Avatar? Or was, well, no, I, no well, well, not that I'm aware of. So, we've seen it, so, so if you see Tangle in 3D, you've seen not, in 95% of it there's floating Absolutely. window. And it's, it's, a, it's a thing that's moving from computer graphics to live action. Yeah. But I'm just saying that like, if you go to see a computer graphics film now, like a really good one, yeah. one that's properly made, like yeah. a Disney one and Pixar probably as well, they've got the floating window. It, 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 it hasn't got to the point, though, that every stereo film that you see has that as well. Okay. Um, so can I just further rat-hole us into the ground about this then? Uh, another sort of train of thought, having talked about, you know, rigs and 3D and epic and stuff. When we both saw um, Green Hornet, which was uh, not shot stereoscopically and um, dimensionalised later in post. Yep, by Stereo D. I was... Pretty impressed with that, and I reckon if you went in cold, not knowing it wasn't shot 3D, you could walk away thinking, "Wow, that worked really well." Why do we bother dragging two cameras around on set for for four months? Um, why are we bothering to you know stick around with 3D rigs and convergence and all of the hassle on set and all the pe- post and the double data and the double camera rental and two lenses and you know all the setup time and reset time? when it can be made to look pretty good in post. Well, okay. Uh, firstly, I, I... I'm just, I'm it, just out there. Okay. Well, I, 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 it's I, get, I'm just, I guess the post is getting better. All right. at, well, we'll discuss this, this more off. on the VFX show. But sure. second shot in, I was like, oh, this is dimensionalized. Um, but Yeah, but by the 50th shot in, you're kind of going... Let me use a different example. I think that uh, Narnia was exceptionally good. Mm. And there were some shots in that and that I thought, I mean, they, they failed. Well, not they failed, but if I was a soup, I'd be Couldn't getting my laser pointer so out and it. saying, okay, that, that bit of this is, and there were killer shots to do, mm. but that bit of, um, I don't know, railing or whatever was in the boat and as you fly through it seemed to be uh, in two places. Yeah. But I thought it was sensationally good. <clears throat> there are a couple of things, though, that like the dimensionalization is really, really hard. So yeah. I, I don't know a lot about the dimensionalization on... Um, on Green Hornet, yeah. other than I've seen it. Yeah. I don't know a lot about the dimensionalization. Uh, you can see as you watch Narnia. it, when you're conscious of it, you can see, wow, that shot would, would have been particularly hard. There's shots looking through Venetian blinds and shots with reflections in cars where a little subtle translucent reflection is clearly a reflection, you know, if it's reflected in glass, it's, you know, it's 30 feet away versus the actual piece of glass is on is, you know, at okay. the focal point. Well, so well, let's it's, have it's, this discussion. It's, it's hard. We let's will have this absolutely. discussion on the VFX We, we shall podcast. do. But, but it was just, int- it made me think, you know, yeah. walked away okay. thinking, well, there's going to be this point, balance. But of- my point about bringing this up wasn't arbitrary. My point about bringing this up was, wouldn't this be a great use of Red Ray? Because what you want is a box about that size yeah. that you can take on set. Because if I was your stereographer on set and and you know you allowed me to do that for you i would really love you to, to be able to say okay jace this is stuff we shot yesterday and then I, we'd yeah. go over to a thing and there'd be a decent throw not yeah. maybe you know a 40 foot uh, mega complex throw but yeah but it, something bigger than a you know 20 inch plasma yeah because i mean yeah. i mean i use and for those of you that are really into stereo and not doing my course over at fx phd <laughs> plug plug um so i'm I, I use a, a tool for working this out, right? Because there's a a, um, uh, a need to work out the maths right, for on these set. things on yeah, set. An on yeah. set and uh, app, an app. On, there's an app for that. Exactly. And there's one called um, IOD Cal. Now it's not super cheap because it's not designed to be. Um, the thing about it is that one of the parameters that you set when you set that is 
you literally set the size of the screen. Like that's one of the sort of pivotal things that you have to decide. Right. What is so you usage? go, okay, my screen width is, and I've gotten to get mine now as I speak. I had it set to, for your shoot, multiplex. Uh, so it was a 10 meter, yep. 30 foot cross screen. I could have gone for a 20 meter screen, but that seemed like 10 meters was about right. Mm-hmm. For what I expected we would be projecting it for, for the ACS and the VES. So... If I change the, that down to a, I don't know, got a laptop or even just a home one meter across screen, mm-hmm. that's a 10, one meter to 10 meters. That's a hell of a difference. And it would affect the stereo settings a lot. So Because it's not just the size of the screen, I guess it's the estimated or the average viewing distance. You're going to be a lot closer to a 30 foot screen, I guess, I, than you are if you're at the you, other side of room so of need 50. I my, um, my stereo course. Um, so. <laughs> So uh, no, what it is? I just I want to I just I want to understand it because I'm sure I'm you know I hope I'll be doing more of it. Okay, because there's everything would be a variable that would scale if the distance between your eyes scaled, but it doesn't. It's Mm. locked. So for example, when you bring something closer out of the screen, you generally don't want to ever get to being half the um, intraocular distance of the. Okay, I'm losing you. Okay. No, no. So you, okay. you just want, there are some like parameters, right? Like, and the ratios that you set up are based on, you know, the separation of your eyes. Yep. And that's on set. You set that, like the separation of the cameras is related to that. Um, but all of that is related to how far away the screen is. Because, in, okay, in simple terms, I have a screen uh, 40 or 50 meters away from you. And I have the images offset by about two inches. Well, they're going to look pretty much in alignment. Now, if I got you closer to that screen and they were offset by, like, on your computer monitor yeah. by two inches, your eyes would melt down because, um, you know, that's a really wide kind of gap. And, okay. and I perceive the gap or the overlay difference, the parallax offset, um, based on how far away it is because it just, you know, obviously something a long way away. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, something a long way away looks sharp. Um, cool. Whereas, you know, up close you can see it's soft. Yeah, right. And so uh, the trouble is, though, that with stereo eyes, the, 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 all the maths, all the ratios hang off how far the distance is between your eyes. And so you can't just say, oh, well, it all scales between my monitor here and in the cinema because the monitor here is what? I don't know, two feet yeah, away from my head. Yeah, different ratios. And it's not going to be, yeah. And mm. so, you know, like in a home viewing environment, they say, what, three and a half times the screen height is a good place to sit when you're watching your telly? Well, so if you're doing gaming work, um, then on your computer monitor, you normally have the gaming work within arm's length. If you're watching a uh, Blu-ray 3D, it yep. would be, you know, uh, maybe like three and a half screen heights away is going to be, I don't know how high is the screen, but mm. like it's going to be what two or three metres away. Usually, yeah, way, and then, way further away than it should be. And then in a cinema, I'm never sitting <coughs> two or three metres closer to the, to, close to the screen. I'm sitting, you know, up the back somewhere. Mm. So it, it, all of those ratios matter a lot. And so getting back to my red ray thing, the, the absolute reason why um, I feel that hopefully a new red ray would incorporate this is because surely they have these issues when they're shooting epics on set. Yeah. Um, and it isn't an easy problem. Like, it's not like you can just buy a projector from, you know, Bob's projector place. And it's the hardware to play it back. It's very, you know, you need yeah. a lot of grunt to be able to play back two streams of 2K or whatever you're going to be working at to, to get that, you know, to get that And they have projector. to be synced properly. Yeah. And they have to be encoded properly. And yeah, you want to do that off-site off, off or whatever, uh, offline, and then, you know, bring the disk drive, SSD, CF card, whatever it be, to set for, for large screen rushes. So the onset of monitoring we're doing at the moment is we get um, 
uh, like we did for Richard Gibson when he was directing, we got him sitting relatively close to a very large monitor. Yeah. Yeah, I, the, pretty much the setup I saw at the ACS that, that yeah, night. the really big one. Very impressive. And, and then you got a sort of a reasonable take on it. You wouldn't sit that close to a normal screen, but mm. I mean, that kind of is best we could no, do. No, but it's good to And then we encoded it with a Davio box or a, an HD link, and, and uh, there you go. Mm. Anyway, so... Anyway, and this will also link a little bit into um, James's interview later on when he talks about interocular and prisms. Oh, good. And so I haven't just how completely you get, wasted your No, no, it ter- terrifically uh, leads into that where okay. we talk about um, all manner of 3D and how you physically do it with, with one camera, with no mirror rigs, all in one body. So that's quite yeah. interesting. Um, so uh, other news? Um, you've got a BBC commissioning guide thingy. Yeah, well, this uh, is quite interesting. I guess if you're particularly, if you're not necessarily, if you're creating something for submission to BBC, but uh, you know, a lot of these uh, their criteria and their recommendations and their guidelines probably be quite worthy for uh, if you're submitting to other people. But BBC have put online uh, a, a lot of white papers on their accepted cameras, um, workflow, HD production guides camera setups and the formats and standards just not not for video but also for audio as well uh and there's again links onto the show notes but basically um it's great that bbc has uh, given a lot of these uh these outlines and guidelines to us on the net which is uh quite interesting particularly if you're as i say if you're planning something for for the beep or something that you know might indirectly get head their way um it's good to know what their guidelines are and why yeah i mean we're obviously we're focused, I guess, on the cameras, but there's everything there from credit guidelines to branding guidelines to, to everything. Um, yeah, delivery requirements. But, uh, yeah, it's what particular cameras and, and why, what particular cameras are used for direct for BBC productions and or for independent, uh, pro- independently produced productions because they'll allow some cameras on that list and not others for, you know, for, for, for their own personal work, which is interesting. Now, switching gears to SLR stuff, um, and, uh, and you and I have... Uh, happily got different monitoring solutions for LCD on mm. onboard monitoring. But then there's now a new one? Yeah, Sony's got one, which is quite interesting. Um, and it's good that they've made something that they're starting to make stuff that's less and less proprietary and less and less got some amazing connector that only works with their gear or only works with... That's true. You know, it, it, it's, it's good. Uh, in fact, some of their product shots of this monitor have it sitting on a Canon, uh, Canon SLR versus, uh, you know, and uh, some uh, some of their own SLRs. So, um, Nick, yeah, Sony announcing uh, onboard HDMI LCD monitors, um, specifically for DSLRs. So, obviously, this flags the fact that they are going to be having uh, HDMI, no doubt, coming, uh, as in video, proper video uh, modes on their SLRs, I guess. But, 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 but while you say that they're all, like, uh, warm and fuzzy with Canon, um, I don't think I can put my Canon batteries to run this thing, can I? No, this requires uh, Sony... Sony batteries. Okay. That, was, that would be too much. That to would be t- baby steps. Yeah, yeah, baby, baby steps, steps. here, Mike. I, so, I actually look. I think Sony. I don't think this is going to do really well. If you go back a few years, a Sony monitor was the gold standard. Mm. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, the Sony Trinitron and those beautiful black Trinitrons with the buttons down, the, those shadow buttons down the side. I had an eighty-inch, yeah. eighty-inch Sony Jap- Japanese-made Trinitron on. On you know, it was like an uncomfortable four-man lift to get it into the house, I, just through the door. I still have a giant Sony HD monitor at my house as the kids' TV monitor. Uh-huh. I obviously went to a LCD at some point, but yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh, so. Anyway, my point is, if Sony's making a monitor, Sony makes 
good monitors and you know that you're going to have good build quality. Yeah. So this is 800 by 480. So it's not, you know, it, it's on par, I think, then with the Marshall resolutions. Yeah. Uh, five inches. Uh, and it's got all the other stuff, the I usual it's, stuff. it's of, less weight than the Marshall, isn't it? It could well be. Uh, yeah, I think well, the Marshall stuff's not too heavy, is it? I don't know. I love it's, my Marshall. I just think this one Yeah. Is so this lighter. is five inch. So it's really good, good size. I think that's really good workable size. Uh, one-to-one pixel mode for focus checking, focus peaking, which we've seen in the F- Sony F3, which is an beautiful way of yeah, you like that. I love that the focus peaking in the F3 <clears throat> is sensational uh, 16 by 9 and 4 by 3 markers what is good which I know that my small HD monitor and your Marshall don't do is this starting to what we're starting to see in monitors and you know the EVFs from um, uh, Cineroid and stuff is having the audio pass through whereby if you're putting audio inputs into your right. camera there's no way to monitor, monitor that. if yeah. a, a plug gets unplugged or whatever you can't even see yeah. audio levels you can't see anything so you can but the audio obviously will this? go through the HDMI so it's got does an om- the software yep. play it through it should it should do. It definitely it should do. I know that through uh, audio definitely comes through the HDMI of, I don't know, of on the Canon. Playback, but I'm just wondering uh, whether it's it on, on record. record. Good question. I, if it did, I can't that see. would be worth its that weight would, in just that alone. Definitely to be able to monitor it. If not, at least to be able to play back. You know, without having to go unplug and switch yeah, yeah. cables. So it's got an inbuilt speaker and/or obviously a headphone socket, so you can check that stuff. Uh, and it's got a really nice kind of tilt swivel uh, mount, which I think is going to be really, really nice because a lot of the stuff, if you've got like, so it incorporates uh, the hot shoe, or you have to add the hot shoe. Yeah, to it's this. got like a, a lock, quick release uh, hot shoe lock um which looks really nice so i mean because obviously if you've got those little ball socket things they're great but if you undo them the monitor just goes flop you know you can smash the monitor or falls you know throws your whole camera out of balance and you know you've got to do it two-handedly if you just want to adjust that monitor it's nice to be able to just grab it and move it so looks like a nice little mount comes with a sun sunshade and 399 so that's uh not bad that's sort of on par with um the Marshall little five inch, which they've just brought out. So anyway, that is coming out in uh, March. I've not seen it anywhere yet on B and H or anywhere, but uh, definitely um, one to think about if you're looking at a monitor in this uh, in this size, which I think is a great size for onboard for L- uh, DSLRs. Well, let's uh, let's go now to the red room uh, to your interview with James. Now, uh, I should say that I thought that when you first described this, that James went up in the space shuttle and shot. Right. James is a cinematographer. Yes. And that's something that the astronauts aren't required to be to get into the NASA training program. So... (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, James has done a lot of ground-based stuff, you know, um, underwater, NASCAR, right. a whole bunch of, of stuff. And obviously, he's now in, in very much involved with uh, uh, NASA for training these astronauts. You've got to put in the show notes that photo you have of the, the film thread. Uh, yes, because he, he talked about it, the threading, the threading path and the way the, the uh, Salido camera is the name of the um, all-in-one, um, definitely, I've put it in the show notes, it's quite an amazing threading path. It takes about 20 minutes to thread that thing. And this is a great, great picture. Why, you need yeah. to see this picture, but then you also need to listen to him talk about it because then what you're seeing will make sense with uh, how, he, how you get these two lenses closer, uh, you know, the, the correct inter- interocular without having to have mirror rigs. So, yeah, it's definitely a great conversation. And here's James. You're entering the Red Room. 
Thanks, James, for taking the time to talk. I know you're in the middle of a couple of short films, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, my, my pleasure. I, I love talking this stuff anytime. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Look, I'm not really sure where to start here, James, but I guess before we talk about the projects, we should probably discuss Elephant in the Room, which is the camera you have to deal with. Uh, many, right. people, many people would be familiar with the IMAX format and the cameras, but perhaps not the 3D rig. Can you give us an overview of how it differs to, sure. to how it differs to the dual um, camera mirror rigs that we're used to seeing? Okay. Uh, well, we actually uh, years ago in mid mid eighties we started with a with a mirror rig. We had two two D IMAX cameras into a, a big giant beam splitter. Uh, sort of had an engine hoist sort of davit thing that we wheeled it around on. Uh, wasn't exactly mobile. Uh, so we started that way and then progressed to a dual strip side by side lens system uh, camera, single body camera. So we've got two strips of uh, 65 millimeter film uh, going through the uh, what's called the Salido camera was the name of it originally. Uh, going through that that camera, uh, you know, the standard 24 frames per second. So we're burning in the neighborhood of 12 feet per second, I think, on on that camera of 65 stock. So uh, that was the the basic production camera. Uh, you know, you, you equate it basically in size to, I don't know, something about the size of a, a bar fridge uh, that you might find in a hotel room, you know. Uh, 260 some odd pounds, again, not exactly mobile, but at least it was one unit uh, that you could get onto a uh, uh a tripod head or a big uh, Cartolini or Cartoni uh, pivoting tripod head. Yeah. So uh, uh, it it made things life a little bit easier. And, and I think a lot of people might have seen my my Twitter picture. I'm <laughs> dwarfed behind <laughs> on it the crane, yeah, <laughs> on the chat. Uh, so uh, that's that's the main camera for for ground production that that people have used. Uh, in recent times, people have been going on and, and trying to shoot with um, uh, digital capture uh, uh, using twin reds or uh, twin phantoms side by side uh, into mirror rigs, all sorts of things, and then up converting that digital material. But it's still not quite the same as, as that big 15 perf 65 millimeter negative. Uh, so. Yeah, in, the, big in red. Cameras, the big cameras, uh, they take a lot of weight, but uh, they sure do, you know, provide the big pretty picture. Yeah. So the camera itself, uh, the the film camera, um, is there prisms to, obviously it's got a fixed, so taking through the lens system, it's a, okay, fi- lens it's a fixed interocular. There we go. We're, we're a fixed interocular. Um, actually, we have, we have uh, a couple of converging lenses, so we can do a bit of convergence. Um, the issue is, if you look at two 1570 uh, images, two 1570 uh, film frames side by side, the centers of those two film frames are about 70 millimeters apart. So you're really kind of limited to a 70 millimeter interocular just because you can't squish your film frames any closer together. Uh, so our, our interocular on that camera is about 70 millimeters. It's a little wider than we'd like to have by about three to five millimeters. Um, but if they are side-by-side, side, uh, typically Zeiss uh, repackaged uh, uh, Hasselblad lenses into a single-unit uh, single box mount. 
and um, they go into, they project onto mirrors. Uh, one mirror is, uh, it hits, reflects the image downward to the to the, to one uh, one eye, and the other mirror projects the image upward to the other eye. So you have basically two layers of film that are facing each other emulsion to emulsion with mirrors uh, lined up to get the images into the right places. Right, yeah, um, hence, being, hence being able yeah. to get the 64mm interocular, which you yeah. couldn't do if they were yeah. totally side-by-side, side, and because of the right. physical size of the lens. Right, right. So we're, that's, that's basically their side-by-side side lenses. Uh, we do have a beam splitter that uh, we can roll into the uh, optical path of one of the eyes in order to view through the, through the left lens. Uh, that's our typical viewing system. Uh, we also can uh, roll that out and go through a video pickoff that's between the two lenses uh, for uh, for video operation, video tap operation, if you want to do that. Uh, I typically like to look through the lens myself, so I'm always taking that putting that beam splitter in there and keeping track of what I'm doing that way. Right. Uh, so what are you seeing through the viewfinder? It's optical, is it? It is an optical viewfinder. Um uh, we, we bounce the light up and around and back in through a big giant viewfinder that comes out the left side of the camera, just like any other, most any other film camera. Um, it, um, it's not particularly bright because it is through a beam splitter. We're losing you know, part of the image uh, information going to the viewfinder, so we have to compensate for uh, uh, that loss of light in that one eye. So, uh, right. you know, it's not the perfect system, but uh, it's, it's worked fairly well. Right. Okay. Uh, one, so one thing. Yep, one thing ahead. I always get. One question I always get is people talk about sixty-five millimeter and seventy millimeter. Uh, the camera negative is a, is a sixty-five millimeter stock, and then the projection uh, print is seventy millimeter, and the extra five millimeters comes on the outside of the perfs. Right. And so, that soundtrack. So the image. Yeah. Yeah. What it was intended originally for soundtrack, it was never used. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, so the image size is identical from the from the camera negative to the print. Okay, so that's a lot of people ask me that. So <laughs> right. Uh, so talk about the the loads and uh, run times. Oh boy, <laughs> uh, we have uh, a grand total of about three minutes of run time uh, on a thousand feet of film. We run about three hundred thirty three feet per minute. So uh, every three minutes, you're reloading. Uh, it takes about takes the the good ACs about twenty minutes to reload the uh, dual strip camera. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's not exactly your your perfect wildlife setup. <laughs> you just don't clip and go. And um, what, what's the maximum frame rate? Is uh, thirty six or something? Was it? Uh, we it depends on on how the camera's feeling that particular day. Uh, thirty six uh we've run at forty two I think we used to be able to get to forty eight when it w- when they were new and felt good okay. uh, but thirty thirty six you know thirty two is kind of where we limited them to these days so say on uh, Hubble if I've seen higher frame rate than that that would right. be uh, another system uh the higher no all the the Hubble launch material that we shot uh was at thirty i believe it was at thirty six frames for one of them and then we step printed. Uh, the other one uh, to about 48 frames. Wow, it's interesting because it seems so much slower than that. And I guess the launch is uh, the, itself not, is is fairly slow. 
Uh, it's not it's not particularly fast, even though you know you're accelerating multi millions of pounds of vehicle straight up in a matter of seconds. It still takes you know some time to get it off the off the launch pad. And, right. And it's so there's there's such a, a a scale of there that it's hard to, to to tell how fast it's actually moving even real real time. So. Yeah. So it must be quite hard. Um, so, okay, let me just see. We can jump into another question. I'm uh, just jumping back to the to the lenses for a minute. So okay. they're all sort of like fly by wire. You're all uh, doing focus and iris electronically. Right, right, right. We're all uh, uh, wired in. It's it's not. Um, I don't think that they ever came up with a wireless remote system. I think it's still a wired remote system, pretty much. Um, but at the the AC can pull. Um, Pull focus at f stops, uh, and on our converging lenses, can manage convergence okay. on those uh, those set of lenses. So um, for so for sorry, I'm interrupting. Keep going. No. So for just sort of like just general ground based shooting, just regular cinematography, is there what are the sort of gotchas versus say just shooting straight thirty five? Is there any real sort of thing you've got to have in the back of your head the whole time? Uh, are you talking two D or three D? Three D. Three D. Well, no, I guess so. Yeah. In 2D, let's, I suppose, let's... in terms of bakes, exposure okay. or yeah. stocks or anything sort of major technical um, okay. page one okay. stuff. We, typically, when you're framing for an IMAX film, you've got to realize that your screens, you know, on a the classic theater, you know, the one there in Sydney, I think, is nearly 90 feet high, if I recall correctly. Um, you know, you're, you're framing for a bloody big screen. Mm. Uh, so if you put somebody's head up at the top of that screen and, and have them you know, saying a line or something, it's, you're looking up their nose when they're talking. Um, if you're anywhere really in the, th- the audience, so you tend to frame things a little bit lower. Right. Uh, you don't tend to frame to do so much close ups. I mean, everything's a close up pretty much once you get inside, you know, 10 or 12 feet of a person yeah. because they're bigger than life size. Yeah. Would get onto that screen. Um, you, you slow your camera moves down because it's such the real estate is so massive that you're you're you know you're panning and tilting. Uh, you've got to slow it down, or you'll get well. We get strobing is a big deal. Uh, also, you can just you know get people motion sick if you're whipping the camera around and you don't want people puking in the aisles. <laughs> That's probably a good thing that this thing is. It's probably a good thing it's not very easy to handheld. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the times we've shot Steadicam with it, you really have to uh, concentrate on not not whipping the camera around and, and and that sort of thing, so that you're you know you don't create that whole uh, uh, kinesthetic negative kinesthetic feel, as I like to call it. You've um, not shot Steadicam with that big Salido camera, not that big. Not Salido. Oh heavens, no, 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 no. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> we managed to get the the weight down for the camera that they took uh, to the top of Everest. Uh, to the point where we could actually put that 2D camera on it. Just, it, I, just sorry, yeah, okay. <laughs> the whole top of Everest uh, sentence has kind of got me for a minute there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll just jump back a bit to the James Nyhouse story, I guess. Give us the Reader's Digest version of, of what got you into IMAX and the projects you've been involved with. Okay. Um, I was very fortunate. I went to Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara and uh, learned, among other things, uh, underwater photography. Uh, when I graduated, I went for, for a little production company in Santa Barbara that specialized in underwater. Uh, 
one day this this Canadian guy showed up with this bloody big camera and wanted to shoot underwater with it. And so we worked with them and uh, on the projects called Ocean. Uh, the the guy who showed up with the camera was Graham Ferguson, who was one of the co-founders of IMAX. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he and I developed a relationship, and that was in 1976. Uh, and uh, that relationship continues to this day. Uh, you know, I talk to him probably every month or so. And uh, he he sort of took me under his wing and mentored me, you know, through the process. And uh, I've worked with him off and on ever since then. Um, I've worked on films. Uh, I shot the first film that was a, an Academy Award nomination for an IMAX film, which was The Eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. Uh, worked on a Great Barrier Reef film. I shot... Uh, Michael Jordan to the max uh, was one of the cameramen on the Rolling Stones, the first Rolling Stones IMAX film in 1990. Uh, worked on Dream is Alive, Hail Columbia. Oh, Destiny in Space. Uh, almost all the space films. Uh, shot NASCAR 3D. Uh, Ocean Oasis. Shot part of Bears. Shot part of Jane Goodall's Wild Chimpanzees. Um, Olympic Glory, uh, uh, Pulse, A Stomp Odyssey is another one I worked on. I was DP on. Uh, about There's about, I don't know, probably 35 or 40 films that I've got some sort of credit on here and there. About 18 is DP. So, so One or two albums. So the, uh, obviously the space thing led you to, you, space. You, had, you had to move to Florida. Well, that's a funny story because I was living in Santa Barbara and, uh, they hired me to come down for a couple of weeks to, to put some cameras out for a couple of launches. Uh, a year and a half later, I made it back to Santa Barbara. And uh, in the meantime, I had met one of the uh, our uh, public relations professionals at NASA and fallen in love with her. And she lived here and had a real job, so I moved. Excellent. I love the oh, fact that uh, it was that it was love, not uh, it was not. it was love, not film, that brought me to Florida. <laughs> Excellent. Let's say with um, say the Hubble three D project, uh, okay. if you can give us an overview, of, if you can give us an overview of what was involved for you back home, and then what the shuttle flew with, because apart from okay. every single facet of every project you've ever been involved in, as a director, I'm really interested in uh, how you train the astronauts uh, to load, shoot, expose, and frame a 3D 65mm camera in the middle of a space mission. But I'll, I just, <laughs> I might just jump back again. Yeah, just, just an overview of, of what was involved for you uh, for Hubble and then what gear and, and what rigs they, they flew okay. with. Okay. Uh, for Hubble, uh, you know, we had a single camera in the cargo bay, an IMAX camera that was in the cargo bay. Fortunately... Um, that mission, they did not have to re- reload that camera. Uh, back when we were making Space Station, we custom-built uh, three cameras uh, to fly in space, one to live on board Space Station, one to go in the cargo bay uh, to fly up and down, and then one to train the astronauts to shoot with before they're flight on the ground. Right. Uh, so that, that big, we call it the IMAX cargo bay camera, the ICBC of course, it was 3D, so it became the ICBC 3D. Um, by the time it was ready for flight, uh, weighed in the neighborhood of 700 pounds, I believe, is what, what we ended up being. 
Uh, of course, it's bolted to the shuttle. Uh, we right. had to figure figure out where it was going to go, where it was going to look, and what lenses we were going to use um, about 18 months before it flew. Yeah. So that's fixed. So that camera's fixed to the one in the cargo, but that's fixed to the manipulator arm. It's it is actually it is it is mounted inside. It it can't move once it's right. put in there. So if you can imagine deciding a shot, the shots you want to shoot 18 months before you shoot them, uh, you sort of see what we went through to. Right. You know, <laughs> when yeah. you pick the spot for that thing. Yeah. Uh, because you know, there's so much paperwork involved in getting anything on board the shuttle and safety requirements and weight and balance and you know make sure you're not going to interfere with the life support system or the, <laughs> or their communication system or anything like that so all it you got to jump through all these hoops and that takes time well um, i'm amazed i'm amazed that uh i mean obviously it's it's an incredible pr thing and obviously it's a government uh, a government body so i guess they they've they've got to really want to fly this thing 700 pounds is going to be, yeah, going to cost a lot to get up there that's a lot of money to orbit. Uh, the the positive public relations that that our films have generated for NASA over the past twenty, you know, twenty five years or whatever it's been, uh, is just amazing. I mean, we're sort of um, one of their major PR, you know, arms mm. <laughs> by mm. de facto. Uh, that. Uh, they, they're behind us, and, and the astronauts see the advantage of it, uh, uh, plus they see it as great home movies to bring stuff back from space. So so you're not really seen as getting in the way? We're not. We Yeah, we're seen as getting in the way, but, but you know, we're seen as also a positive getting in the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, we approach it uh, all the time from, uh, uh, you know, the non-interference bases. We've worked with the, with the program long enough that... You know, we know we can't stick our nose here, but yeah, maybe we can get in over here. Right. And uh, so you know when to push and when not to push after after a while, and and know what what they want and what they don't want, and it it makes things go a lot smoother. The astronauts are just a dream to work with. Uh, technically, training them is is the easiest thing in the world. A lot of times, they end up training us more than we train them. So, who builds that camera? That camera was built, was, uh, those cameras, three of them, were built by uh, a camera builder named Marty Mueller uh, in Idaho. Uh, Marty's built a lot of, uh, he actually built the, uh, uh, the camera that Chris Nolan crashed on Batman was one of his cameras, right. the 2D camera. Uh, so Marty got a little work out of that show. Uh, and, uh, but he's, he's built a lot of uh, uh, if you've seen the the Gemini uh, two strip uh, thirty five camera stereo camera, he built that one. Uh, so he's done a lot of a lot of really good camera work. So Marty, it was a team of Marty and then uh, a group of us from IMAX that uh, that worked on it. Right, I saw a couple of the just regular thirty five mil camera stacks, but I didn't. What was the what was the IMAX uh, incident? It was I think when they when they flipped the uh, the tractor trailer over. Right. Yeah. I think I think it slid a little further than they were expecting and, and crunched into the I don't know the the entire details of it, but yeah. They they crunched the camera pretty good. Uh, that's the joy of doing it in camera. Yes, there you go, absolutely. And that's that's what's the great thing about Nolan and, and Fister, they like doing it for real. <laughs> now, okay, yeah, but come on, Mr. I, um Mr. NASCAR and uh shuttle launch <laughs> shuttle launch, I'm sure you've you've I, well, I didn't say I disagreed with him. 
You must have lost one. I well, no, I've not. Uh, well, let me take that back. I didn't do it. <laughs> Honest, I didn't do it. Uh, we were filming down in your neck of the woods, out of the Great Barrier Reef, and um, doing underwater. And then we had a, a, a second unit that was doing some stroboscopic uh, macro work in a uh, aquarium overnight while we were shooting in the daytime he was shooting at night and uh he was working by himself and got a little tired and forgot to put the tilt lock on the camera the camera tilted forward busted the aquarium and flooded the camera on dry land and uh, oh, so uh, i had to go in and rebuild it so we could finish the shoot not <laughs> the military reef so oh, that, that's, uh, that's same as that's 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 fairly tame actually on dry tame. land uh, on well okay on space station uh we were filming in kazakhstan uh the launch of the first piece of space station from uh, uh on a proton rocket it's a big heavy lift rocket and the russians let us put our cameras wherever we wanted to so okay we're going to put it right out here by the launch pad uh screwed it down into the ground put about a ton and a half of sandbags on top of it uh Tony Myers and our producer Judy Carroll spent the whole day we were setting up the camera picking up rocks that was between the rocket and our our camera so that you know right. it wouldn't blow up into them. Uh, and so we they all go the launch goes come back all the sandbags are blown away completely. I walk up to the camera and there's bits of glass laying down in front of the camera housing because we had a, a, a quartz glass plate in front of the lens. And I'm going, oh, this is not good. This is not good. <laughs> and uh, so finally we dug into the thing, got it all out, and uh, it had a rocket. It, it, the rocket itself had just blown up concrete. This was old, cruddy concrete from right. years ago. and It had blown up a chunk of concrete and went right through the glass, through into the right eye of the camera. Uh, fortunately, I had a, a, a filter on the, in front of the camera, so it went through the plate glass, broke the filter and didn't put a scratch on the lens. Still, the footage would have been pretty usable and interesting. Uh, well, we used the entire thing because the rock hit just as the, the rocket cleared the frame. And this rock comes in and pops the glass, breaks it. Excellent. And we used it in the film. And I've sat in theaters and watched people see that. They'll see that, that, that shot and they'll take their 3D glasses off and look at them. <laughs> to see if they're broken <laughs> and put them back on. <laughs> Is there a rock in my eye? Is there a rock in my eye? <laughs> Excellent. Oh, yeah. Um, can I I'm do two, one quick little, or I guess one little quick technical jump back? Uh, I mean, are we talking about just wider slit versions of it's, regular 35 mil stock? There's that's, nothing technically... That's correct. We slit from the same uh, sheets that they, 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 they uh, cut for... Uh, 35 and for 16, we shoot, uh, uh, you know, 5207, 5213, 5219, you know, it's the same, uh, same stock, mm-hmm. no problem whatsoever. Uh, the interesting thing, the Hubble roll uh, was one roll of film. It was 5,400 feet long. It's the longest single camera roll ever produced and uh, weighed 54 pounds. So uh, and they couldn't reload it. So we had eight minutes of film for that flight period. Wow! You got to really make sure that camera rolls. Make sure you should turn it, it on, and make better yet, turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't forget to cut. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite books is uh, Full Moon uh, for oh, yeah. the Apollo mission uh, uh-huh. photographs. And just when you see the scans of the, full, the film strips that they took, oh. it's quite amazing that yeah. so I've, many, I've, the failure rate is like minimal, if nothing at all. Yeah. It just amazes me. I have I have had the privilege of seeing some of those originals, and uh, it's they're, they're phenomenal. They are just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. They they take their photography serious. It's uh, it's uh, you know one way. That's part of the the NASA uh, uh, charter is to keep the public informed of what they're doing, and and photography and, and film and video has you know plays a big big role in that. Uh, so they've always taken their their their, their picture taking pretty seriously, and uh, yeah, uh, they do a good job at it. So the astronauts, I mean, I guess they. Um, do you find they have a passion for photography, or do many of the, the the good ones have have got that as a bit of a? It's it's uh, it's funny because it it will vary from flight crew to flight flight crew. Uh, you may have one or two people on a flight crew that are just serious into photography, and they they. They, they get composition, they get timing, they get, you know, they just get it real easy. Yeah. And then the other ones, you kind of got to lead them to water and dunk their head in it a couple of times uh, to make sure that they're, they're seeing what you want them to see. Uh, but in the end, they all, you know, our, our, the rate of what we, the, the, the ratio of our usable footage to what we throw out is, oh, enviable by any standard. Uh, I think we used almost every frame from this last shot, this last film. You, um, I mean, when so much of it sounds like it is completely pre-planned and scheduled, um, is well, there... it, it is. It is pre-planned, uh, and part of that planning is contingency whenever the plan goes in the toilet. Uh, yeah. Which, which happened uh, in, in Hubble on the very first uh, spacewalk. Uh, they had an, we the the one of the major uh, the number one payload uh, for that Hubble flight was to get the wide field planetary camera replaced. Yeah, and they got out there and couldn't get one of the bolts out of the old one. And you know they knew if they snapped the head off of it, they were done. Yeah, so they were you know two hours you know dinking around like you know underneath your car trying to get a bolt off. Uh, in space, yeah, <laughs> and, insane, huh? and uh, it put them behind on the timeline, and so the actual replacement of the instrument happened in the dark, so we couldn't film it. Right. So you know, there's your your main main science objective dropping off, being documented by IMAX. So mm. we had you know, came back and had some other fallback methods to cover it, but uh, uh, you know, you you plan for though that you know getting behind on the timeline because you know you've got. 45 minutes of sunlight every 90 minutes. So basically a sunset and a sunrise every 90 minutes here. Uh, right. So it doesn't take long before what you're doing slips into that night pass. So how much are you involved when there, when during the mission? I mean, is it set and forget? Or are you there in case oh, no. something goes wrong? Or are you, are you... Oh, no. We, uh, we are there. Uh, we participate all along in their training. We go to a lot of their... Uh, their simulations uh, and and work the, the system there with simulations, but we are in mission control um, in a in sort of little back room. They tuck us away and tell us to keep our heads down and be quiet. And uh, you know, but we we're sitting there listening, following along on the mission. And if if the crew has any problems, you know, 
Uh, you'll hear, uh, you know, Atlantis, Houston for IMAX, and, you know, the hair on the back of your Ooh. neck stands up, and, uh, you know. <laughs> That's me. The, the next word you want you don't want to hear is, uh, we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and typically that doesn't happen. Uh, so, so uh, technically, then, are they? Uh, I mean, obviously, we've talked uh, sort of aesthetically, but uh, technically, they're they're controlling exposure, or is that how, how is they, that they are they are controlling exposure? Occasionally, I'll get a call down and say, you know, for IMAX, do you guys agree with an F eight on this? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't know. You're on the other side of the world. You know, I don't know. But, uh, typically, do we can give a pretty good answer of what they. Uh, with our database of flight information that we've gained over the last you know, 20 years, uh, we can pretty much tell them what the exposure is going to be and if they're too far off. Uh, you know, we also record audio inside the crew compartment, and we've, we've gotten those audio tapes back and, and listened to them, and I've heard them voting on F-stops. You know? <laughs> okay, all for F-11. Raise your hand. <laughs> I love it. Six months of planning, and it still comes down to a guess. It comes down to democracy. <laughs> so, uh, for some missions, they did have a, like uh, I say, smaller in inverted commas camera in the cabin. Yes, they did. Um, for all of our uh, space station film, we had uh, we had a three D camera on board space station that just lived there. That shuttle, no pun intended, uh, film up and up and back in the in the orbiter. Uh, and flights before then, we had our 2D camera that we flew inside the uh, uh, crew compartment. Yeah. And at that, that one, they, uh, you know, they had to be a full-on camera crew. Yeah. They had to pull focus. They had to load. They had to, you know, use the changing bag, uh, you know, the whole nine yards that a, that a uh, film crew on the Earth has to do. But, you know, they have to do it in space in between, you know, their, their hectic schedule. Uh the, the advantage, though, is when they drop something, it doesn't fall. So <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah, you, that's the, true. Uh, and the mags, the mags, are, the mags are lighter, and the rolls. The are mags, lighter. everything's light. Doesn't weigh anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually became an issue. Uh, you think about it, you've got a uh, thousand foot of sixty-five negative weighs about ten pounds. Mm. Um, but it's, it doesn't weigh anything in space, but it still has that mass. Yeah. And, and whenever you accelerate mass in space, it sort of acted like a gyro, and so it would actually process the camera a little bit whenever you started it. So I, you know that's one of the things we had to train them. Okay, when you turn it on, it's going to go to the left. Make sure you're you know counteracting that. Right, right, yeah. But uh, for Hubble, we weren't allowed. We we weren't allowed. They just didn't have space, any room in the in the crew compartment for us to fly a regular IMAX camera. Uh, so what we did is we. Uh, did a lot of research and came up with the uh, uh, Canon uh, HDV, the G1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, we shot the interiors for Hubble with that camera. Uh, talking about pushing an HDV to its uh, limits. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but by the time we converted it to 3D and, and um, uh, all that, it, looked, it, it was not bad. It Actually, some of it looked quite good. And the big advantage... Uh, we were really not limited on time uh, that we could film. Right. Uh, yeah. When you're flying IMAX, you've got a three-minute load, or actually with with uh, in-cabin camera in in 3D, you've got a 90-second load. It's so, just, just crazy. And it, and it sounds like a bloody sewing machine going off. So you can't really record audio, or you can't just roll and get good stuff. 
with the uh, with the Canon with the G1, we just um, we were able just they were just able to roll and roll and roll and roll, and then we just cherry picked from it, and we got a real sense of of the mission and of the people more than we would have with an IMAX camera. I think. I mean, that's what all of this is about, and why we drive to to going to such lengths to get these cameras into such amazing places is because it's you know with we're. This is areas where the average uh, mere mortal will will never go. Oh, ab- absolutely. That's uh, IMAX is it's one of our little catchphrases. Has always been, you know, we we take people where they either can't or won't go. Yeah. You know, you take them to space. You take them to the Titanic. You take them up Everest. You know, uh, these are places that that the average Joe just isn't going to see. And and with the pristine images that IMAX and IMAX 3D produce you know you've got probably the world's best simulator um, yeah for putting people right there where that camera was so um stepping back then i guess um back to earth i'm interested how you work with the camera size you know down on earth particularly say rigging on the side or in the cockpit of an ascar it must be (laughs) that must be a science in itself you can't really just book any old gripping team can you yeah, you just—it's—it uh, takes a lot of planning, and, and uh, as as a result of of my years of rigging IMAX cameras in strange places, I kind of over rig everything that I do. Uh, but uh, yeah, it it you, you've got to consider, especially if you're going into a high G situation. Uh, you know, what's the camera going to do in that situation? Uh, most of the time, it keeps running. Sometimes it doesn't, mm. uh, but you don't want it moving around a whole lot. So you you really have to be almost part engineer when it comes to uh, you know putting these things on the back of a of a car that's going 170 miles an hour around a racetrack in the middle of 18 other cars. Yeah, or uh, you know up on a launch pad, you know with uh, seven and a half million pounds of thrust going off next to you. Uh, mm. So you you really. Over, you overthink it a lot of the times, mm. and uh, try try to make it more than safe. And and only a couple of times I think have we had any real any issues. Uh, I don't think I've broken a seriously broken a camera ever. But knock on wood, uh, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> always happened. Because <laughs> I've done plenty of bad things with just thirty five, so I'm amazed. Yeah. Well done. Uh, so yeah, so, it's um, you. Sorry, so digital must be looming somehow. I mean, you've talked about experimenting with, with, with twin I, reds and things. There must be something happening on the landscape or something in development, I'm imagining, because especially for stuff like Hubble, having a smaller, lighter yeah. camera with longer run times, yeah. higher frame rates, you know. We're, we're, we're you know, looking at anything we can to, uh, especially if we, if we want to continue our legacy of, of flying in space. Um, with with the shuttle being, uh, you know, coming to the end of its its run here this year, mm. uh, we're not we won't be able to get any film back from space. We can get it up there, okay, uh, but bringing it back from the space station uh, in in the vehicles that they're talking about, there's just no room. Uh, yeah. So if we want you know images from space, we have to go to digital capture, and that's that's one of the things I've been working on quite quite a lot here in the last uh, uh, year and a half, two years, is trying to see what's coming, you know, staying abreast of what's uh, uh, 
what's being done digitally. Mm. Uh, you know, and we're you know we're looking at in betweening frames with lower frame rates and doing just weird, weird, weird things uh, so that we can beam all of our footage back down from space station. Uh, and again, if we want to go further than space station, if we want to go to the moon or if we want to go to Mars, uh, film won't make that trip. Uh, the radiation is just is just too much for it. Right. So for for beyond low Earth orbit, we're going to have to go to a digital capture system. Hmm. Uh, you know, I'd love to see a big you know leaf ninety megapixel uh, <laughs> back that shoots twenty four frames a second. Uh, so what know, do we call the equivalent uh, mega um, uh, K then? I guess for say a scanned. Um, IMAX. For scanned, I think I think we're looking at at least twelve K, right? On, wow. on the scan. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you'd always like to oversample. Uh, you know, so if you could probably if you could do eighteen K on the scan, it would probably be ultimate. Yeah, you know, that's just that's just me talking out the side of my mouth, <laughs> but uh, times two. <laughs> yeah. Well, for three D. Yeah, times two for 3D. That's a lot, a lot of, of data. It's a lot of data to beam back from the moon. <laughs> <laughs> it comes back to making sure you don't shoot too much. We may, we may be doing editing on the moon, you know. <laughs> okay, t- circle that one. We're sending it back. Ah, <laughs> uh, dear. Okay, that's very so, hysterical. <laughs> very funny. I hadn't thought of that before. That's interesting. <laughs> but so no, that's really the way we're we're kind of looking. We've we've been working with, um, uh, I guess Phase One and Leaf and um, Canon. Canon's mm-hmm. been just tremendously helpful with us on this. Uh, uh, and they, you know, we got their part of what of us that got their their the G one up on space station and up on shuttle. It's now this. De facto shuttle camera, right? Really, uh, and you still know, today. I, still today, yeah, wow. yeah. So uh, we are uh, we're working with Canon a lot on that. Uh, of course, uh, NASA flies a lot of Nikon gear right now, and we're looking at those. Uh, you know, I've got a I've got a D one D right now that I'm looking at just for the frame rate to see if we can you know do still interpolation between the ten frames a second. And, right. Um, the problem is get it to run for longer than, you know, 30 seconds or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, wow. uh, then uh, looking at, at things like Phantom. So, there's lots of things out there. It's just, uh, it's it's a big step from where we are to where it needs to be to be equal to or better than what IMAX is now. Yeah. But equally, you know, like every budget in the world, NASA's budget and the way they think and going more unmanned and, and as yeah. you say, one-way trips, uh, yeah. you do need to rethink it. Yeah, absolutely. We have to do it. And, you know, sooner or later, uh, heaven help us, film's going to go away. Uh, at least that's what they tell me. I don't believe it. But <laughs> <laughs> what I, you got? That rep. I was talking to her the other day, and she says, oh, so you're still shooting film? I said, yeah, I'll tell you, pull it from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> Well, you guys are certainly helping to to hang on to it and to help yeah. its longevity because it's uh, certainly, obviously, for, for well, look for feature film. It's it's still it's still very very viable. If you look at yeah. uh, the, oh, yeah. the, the the nominated films for um, sure for well, you know, American and, Cinematographer Awards, it's there's only one of them is digital. Yeah, yeah, and you look at uh, uh, oh, 
uh, speaking of which, uh, one of my students won the undergraduate award for uh, the ASC undergraduate award. This oh, year, Boyd fantastic. Hopkins. So Excellent. we were proud of him. Excellent. Uh, Congratulations. So yeah. what's so what's next for you? I mean, I don't know how you even start to top this stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, well, like I say, we're working uh, uh, some of a, somewhat of a digital solution for space. Uh, hopefully, that's going to turn into another uh, uh, space film based on um, uh, from the from the space station. Right. Uh, can't talk a whole lot about it. Sure. But uh, you know that that could be that's probably the next big IMAX project I've got coming along. Okay. Uh, you know, some uh, a few documentary bits and pieces, uh, uh, Chesapeake Bay film, things like that. Uh, okay. Got uh, actually shooting a uh, a feature in sixteen millimeter coming up oh, really? in a month or two. So <laughs> <laughs> from from big to really little. Oh uh, yeah. I think you're probably the only one of the few people shooting 16 as well. 16, yeah. Uh, you know, the producer tried to get us to shoot it on the red, and and uh, my friend, who's the who's the writer, uh, said, "No way are we shooting it on the red." <laughs> uh, but you look at it though, uh, cost wise, it's almost better. It's almost cheaper to shoot it on 16 these days. Really. Uh, mm-hmm. With the deals you can get on on yeah. camera rentals, and yeah. and when you look at all the post processing involved with something digital like Red, uh, you know the numbers are are almost equal or better for film. So. Because because digital is around though, that the deals are there. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. <laughs> no, I am I am a big digital fan though. It's uh, I. I I cannot really honestly I can't wait for the day when we can shoot uh, an equivalent image on digital that's that's equal to an IMAX. You know I I got crushed vertebrae and hernias from hauling that that bloody heavy thing around the the planet for thirty years, and uh, would really like to be able to shoot something with a really lightweight camera with more than a three minute run. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if Red were a bit hit more ahead of the game, you'd have their, you know, their huge, you know, 126k. Yes. Look at that. <laughs> and a 645 kind of. Uh, yes. Oh yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, one day, when they get one the day. rest of them out the door. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, look. Uh, thanks, James, so much. I really appreciate it. I would definitely. My pleasure. Pick, I would definitely pick up the Sharpie and the China Graph and return to first day seeing for you. Anytime. Oh. <laughs> well, Anytime. I am there. I just need some gym time, I think. <laughs> well, just, you know, uh, just pump a few fosters and you'll be all right. <laughs> so how can people uh, get in touch or find out more about you? Uh, well, I guess I'm on Twitter. Uh, what is it? 70 millimeter DP yep. on Twitter. And uh, uh, I'm on Facebook, James L. Nyhouse. or. Uh, and uh, I've got a website. I've got uh, 1570films.com. So all those can find me and get a hold of me. Now, you mentioned 1570 before. What's the, the uh-huh. significance of that number again? Okay, 1570, that is actually the IMAX format. Right. It's, it's a 15 perf wide uh, frame and it's 70 millimeters, <clears throat> 70 millimeters high. There you so, go. Uh, uh, 1570. Right. <laughs> IMAX <Right>. was already taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you might yeah. have a might have a bit of battle on your hands there. Yeah, but I did. I actually had the first IMAX website ever. So before they had one. <laughs> well, look, yeah. uh, I could, I could, I could do this all day, James. But uh, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate no it. Mate. Anytime, Jason. Well, thanks for that, Jace. And uh, I've got to say, I am a bit of a NASA freak. Um, I was lucky enough to actually see a nighttime shuttle launch at uh, in Florida. And it, yeah, it was uh, moving and it lit up the sky like I had not anticipated it would. Yeah. Um, and yeah, look, I enormous amount of respect for the guys, but I, I love it talking about this kind of side of it where it's not quite as obvious as the, um, the uh, you know, I mean, the, Obviously, the flights, the, the, the major accomplishments, um, mm. a lot of press focus on that. Uh, the stuff behind it, the tech behind it is actually fascinating. Oh, I, the two things I wanted to get out, which obviously he t- touched on, was the fact that I wanted to work at how you train somebody who's a highly technical person and has probably going up there with um, either some scientific work to do or geological or whatever or astrono- astro- um, um, astrophysics or you mm-hmm. know astronomy and how you know you train them to almost you know to put that artistic hat on really um and also the other part of it was to obviously to touch on the digital side and the fact that you know they are still looking at uh, other ways of doing it because you know as he touches on that one of these days these trips are going to be one way and you're not going to be able to bring stuff out you're not going to be able to bring footage back it's getting more and more expensive to freight up uh, to, to set every kilo it costs you know millions of dollars to get up there and you want to be able to do it with uh, do it digitally so uh, I, I think you also, with the show notes, um, James has got a fantastic Facebook page with a ton more pictures. Uh, he's got a great, uh, he's got a whole ton of stuff on YouTube and Vimeo. So he's got some brilliant um, links to, uh, he, he is like voracious with his posting of his, a lot of his behind the scenes pictures and, and his uh, IMAX reel. There's some great stuff. Um, I think I'll, I'll try and put the link in the show notes. There's a lot of very cool footage on, on his website. So don't stop there. Go and check him out. And and obviously follow him on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, yeah, which he, which he says is uh, 70 millimeter DP. And in fact, that's going to be our Twitter shout out for the week. Actually, uh, coming up next week on the show, we're going to do a um, an, another Red Room interview. This time, we're actually going to split it. It's going to be, as this one was partially about uh, a couple of different things, we're going to be looking at digital sensors and how to calibrate them and how to deal with them with one of the guys that actually was on the Apollo mission uh, team for the design of the cameras that we use so I, I couldn't help myself but ask him about how you design a camera for an Apollo uh, mission yes. and some of the issues that came up there and, and it's a great guy Lee Peterson that's coming up next week on the show um, we just have some gear to cover off um, another little bit of gear yeah which is really cool actually gear I guess it's, it is essentially a website but this is a great uh, link Mike this is have you had a play with this it's just sensationally interactive uh, on Abel Cine's website and obviously the guys and Mitch are the guys at Abel Cine just are just awesome but they have a brilliant interactive um field of view comparator it's good isn't it if you're able to literally punch in like a and b punch in an epic x on one side and then a, a canon 5d or a red one and see the difference in the field of view and it doesn't just say here's one shot and here's the other it's literally showing you 
uh, under each picture to show you the difference between the field of view. It also then shows you like an overlay and a side-by-side. It'll also then show you the physical millimeters of the sensor, so no more arguments about what is the, you know, what is the 16 by 9 measurements of what sensor of a of a uh, Canon GH1 oh, yeah, whatever in, 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 in video. Yeah, exactly. What's the crop factor? Exactly. It works, it physically works out the crop factor for you and shows you the millimeters of the sensor. So there's like a ton of information there and you don't have to, it's just very, very simply laid out and just just excellently well, well done and it's right there and interactive on the screen. So that's um, ablecine.com slash FOV for field of view. So good on you guys and yet yeah, that's going to end many an argument or uh, you know solve many an issue so um if you want to uh talk to us um please send us an email or follow us on the twitters what are you jace i am wingrove twitter.com slash wingrove or vimeo.com slash wingrove or jason wingrove.com um yes. okay <laughs> thank you you'll find me over at fxguide.com or at fxphd.com and i'm mike seymour on um twitter's so gonna thank um matt our producer for this week for editing the show together thank you jace Thank you, mate. And well I'll done. see you guys next week. See you at the next uh, in the uh, FX Guide Miramar. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. This podcast is sponsored by Storm, the red digital cinema production hub from the Foundry. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.